This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Have you made your funeral plans? Do you know what you want to happen? Perhaps there is a special spot you would like your ashes to be scattered. I'm not sure whether Jane Cochran has made those decisions, but she has a character in her book, The Way From Here, who has. Welcome, Jane. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. Susie, your character, is young. She's fancy-free and only 40 when she dies. Her older sister, Camilla, or Mills, is the responsible one. She's a wife, mother, and takes her role as a teacher seriously. Susie knows that her big sister, Mills, will never say no to a task. So how did Susie die And what did she ask her sister to do? Well, I think Susie died in a very Susie way. I mean, obviously Susie had to die. It was quite sad because I love writing Susie, but she did need to die for the the rest of the book to take place. And I felt like her death really needed to represent her life. And I think what what we found out very early in the book, so there's no spoilers, is that Susie dies when she is stringing up some lights for her 40th birthday celebrations in the garden using a wonky ladder that she's found on the side of the road. She's snapped it up thinking, oh, the gods are shining in my favour. I've found a free ladder. Look what I'm going to do. I'm going to decorate my party. And, of course, things don't turn out the way Susie was expecting. She's had her ups and downs, but usually things go her way and she's just like one of those people that you know that are fun and they sweep you up in their excitement and their drama and she falls off the ladder and obviously meets a very early death and then that's where we find out that she has written these letters for her sister Camilla in the event of her untimely death which really I don't think Susie was expecting. Now this is just a little paragraph that describes the sisters well I think. What was surprising was the discovery of these letters. The letters suggested forward planning, introspection, neither of which were attributes Camilla associated with her dear baby sister. It made the letters much harder to ignore. They were carefully labelled, numbered, and from the one Camilla had read so far, utterly Susie, revelatory, intriguing, and a touch scatterbrained. So let's give some background to Susie and her family. Was there sibling rivalry between Susie and her sister Mills? I think for most of their lives, they actually existed quite happily alongside each other because they were so different. I think they had such different ways of approaching like their life, their careers, their relationships. And I think in in this time, there wasn't a lot of competition between the two of them and that they were able to have like quite a peaceful sibling relationship. I think they both wanted the other one to behave in ways that they could understand better. I don't think it was a competition there at all. Mills and their mother bonded over horses. So who was Susie closest to? Susie was close to her grandma, uh, Nellie, who also is a very strong presence in this book. And even though she is not alive for most of the action, Susie has this lovely relationship with her grandma, which I think a lot of us do remember with our grandparents because it's a relationship that does that has the nitty-gritty of the day-to-day taken out of it and those challenges that you might have with your immediate parents it's a very close relationship and a a fond relationship and I think Susie really feels that her grandma always had her back and really understood her that she was a special person in in Susie's life so she is very influential even after she does pass away. 
Susie does know just a little bit about Grandma Nellie, that she wasn't born in Australia. A lot of the action takes place in this book when Susie is very young. And I think it's quite usual at that stage for us not to have a lot of understanding about our grandparents' lives. And often we do only hear the little tidbits that, that the older generations want to hand down because a lot of it is is not is not palatable for younger kids or it's it's tricky or it's it's emotional or it it's kind of complicates the family relationship. So I think she, a lot of the, her life, Susie's had this very basic understanding of where her grandmother came from and it's only as she gets older that she starts to explore that past and how it connects to her and her parents and some things are passed down the line and, and some stories are, are sort of tucked away and, and kept until the time is right to, for them to be told, which is, it happens in real life, I think, just as much as it does in fiction. 1998, on the family property, Matilda Downs, there was an accident that caused family friction and the acceptance of Susie taking off as a 19-year-old girl overseas. And her grandma used to send her talcum powder money. Now, I hadn't heard this term before, talcum powder money. That is actually something my grandmother used to do for me, which is just where it's one of those examples where a little bit of a real life weaves its way into the story. I was similar to Susie. I left home when I was uh, 17 and I travelled overseas for a little while and then I went on to university. My grandma used to every now and then send me a little bit of money and she used to describe it as talcum powder money and she said it was for all the, the you know, the toiletries and the, the things that um, young women need and I always thought that was a really lovely gesture. <laughs> Well, as well as money, Susie is getting letters from her grandma, Nellie, who wants her to go to the National Gallery. But the next communication she gets from Australia is that Nellie has died. So Susie feels the commitment. But what is it that Nellie wants her to see? Well, I think that is tied up a little bit in the mystery of the story. And I think Nellie, like Susie, is starting to share her stories and she's ready to start telling these things, but I think she's doing it incrementally. And unfortunately for Susie, she she's not very forthcoming about what she's trying to share. So Susie has to really work a lot of it out for herself. And so does the reader, obviously, go along for that journey. But Nally wants to share with her a piece of art and a painting that has had a, that she's had a connection to at some stage in her past. And she's asked Susie to go and, and see this painting and Susie really has very little idea why she's been sent there and we don't know why she's been sent there. So it, it takes her that time, but she, while she's there, she has the connection. She can feel Nellie's presence and she can feel that there is something that Nellie is trying to tell her, but she really, it does take her a little bit of time to work out exactly what that connection well, is. David is a, a, a man that Susie meets in the art gallery on this first day when she's sent on to see the painting by her grandmother, Nellie. And Susie feels an immediate connection to David. She feels at ease with him. She feels a little spark of connection. A girl who is, is travelling, she's out on her own. She's looking, she's looking for those connections. She's looking for people that will take her to new places that will show her new things and David's just that little bit older you know he's the kind of guy that hangs out in an art gallery of an afternoon and this is the sort of adventure that Susie's looking for these people that will lead her to new places and you know she's a girl who's grown up on a farm in outback Australia she's she's just ready she's like a sponge and that's what David gives Susie. Well, Susie really wanted to impress David, and this is the quote. My grandmother wanted me to come here. She knew I appreciated fine art. Susie's eyes watered a little at the lie. 
The closest they got to fine art at Matilda Downs was repainting the garden fence each dry season. It's a friendship for him, but possibly an infatuation for Susie. And on one of the outings he takes her, she meets his mother, Lucinda. How best to describe her, Jane Cochran? Oh, I think Lucinda could be described as a piece of work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, most writers say it's always fun to write the, the villainous or the, the characters that have got a little bit of a, a mean streak or a little bit of a sort of that superiority thing going on. And I could just feel Lucinda talking to me as I was writing because she was such a fully formed person and the, the drama of the way she moved through the world as an actress and how she let that carry on into her real life and her relationships and the way she sort of dealt with other people was it was really fun to write and really fun to see how she then dealt with these people coming into her life that she couldn't control. So I, I found, yeah, she, she really is one of those very strong, very dominating female characters. So David's family owns a cottage on the Ile de Clare in France. David's going there to paint. So she decides to go too, but realises why David isn't romantically interested in her. There is someone else for David and Susie also finds a romantic interest. Who were these four and how did they spend the summer? Well, one of the things I wanted to talk about in, and write about, I think it came from writing this book in lockdown and being at home and at my desk, but I really wanted to explore that beautiful feeling of, of young summers and friendships and or an intense holiday and not just on a romantic level, but when you go away or you're with a group of people for a period of time and it's just so, A, it's intense, but B, you've just got this little suspended moment in time where the days are long, the days are warm, every day is a, another adventure. So we had out, we have sort of the four characters. We have Susie, who we've obviously talked about earlier. We have David from the art gallery. We have Isabel, who is David's uh, love interest, and then another, a French love interest for Susie on the island. And just letting these uh, four characters have that idyllic golden summer and then the the real the definition of an idyll is that it's short-lived and it is going it can't be maintained in real world so it really was that feeling of something is going to break this this piece and this ideal situation. Well David did sketches of them but what else did he want to convey in his drawings about the island? He wanted I, I mean I Ile de Clare is a fictional island, but I based it very much on an island I visited probably 20 years ago off the coast of Brittany in France, which is was just a beautiful, very much stuck in time, stuck in time. There's no cars, like the coastline is, is stunning and the, the rocks and the promontories. And but it also has this lovely mystical historical element and it, it has all the old fairy tales and the people who live there. And I really wanted to for him to be trying to capture that in in some sort of essence as well as in a similar way to what I was trying to do with my story I wanted to David to be on a similar journey trying to to capture the essence of the Ile de Claire in, in his art and and to sort of in a similar way that the whole the whole the painting of the horse was connecting the generations for his art to connect the generations and, and speak to the different people in the story. Well, you talk about the myths and, and fantasies and there is a myth about a stolen baby and we know with enchantments there could be poison in the apple. <laughs> Susie comes home in 1998, very sad and not saying why, and now she's dead. So the National Gallery 
and the Ile de Claire were the first two spots for scattered ashes and letters to be read. Reliable big sister Mills is there to do it. But does everything run smoothly? Well, of course, nothing runs smoothly <laughs> when we have human, human beings involved because I think even the best laid plans are going to fall apart, especially when you ask things of people that are outside of their comfort zones. She's in control of everything most of the time, but she, at some point, she's going to be pushed to her limits. And I think Susie has, has done that a little bit through her life and now she's found the ultimate way to do that from beyond the grave. So this journey that Mills is on, it, it really does test her and obviously then she, at some point, she has to to push back and, and come out with her own agenda and, and think about what she's really getting from this journey and what she needs to to find out from it. So there is, a, there is a, a definitely a moment where you think, yes, this is this is taking on a life of its own and it's not exactly what Susie intended. There's a bit of a mystery too. Her letter went missing in London and she hears there is another Australian on the Ill Declare. But there's two more letters, one in Devon and one back home in the Matilda Downs. Ah, And for Mills to want to follow these instructions, it may have been a pilgrimage to find Susie and what caused her problems, as you say, but it also meant a final straw in the breakdown of her marriage, and it was the catalyst for a huge fight with her mother. Look, we get clues, updates, and clarifications along the way. Very cleverly written and very cleverly plotted. How did you organically manage it all? Well, look, it was definitely this one was redrafted and drafted because I think, as you can imagine, the the letters really had to, they had to show Susie as a, a person and a character and they had to give enough information for Camilla to find out what she needed to find out, but they also needed to leave the mystery open so that both Mills and the reader could tag along and, and let it gently unfurl before them. Once the letters fell into place structurally and, and worked out what they were doing with their teasing and their information reveals, then it was a little bit easier. But it was it did take a lot of rewriting and, and shuffling things around just to make sure that the, the mystery unfolded at the right pace and that the reader was right there with our characters as they made the discoveries of a delicate dance. And it, I, I, lucky the lockdown went on forever in Melbourne because it took me a long time to get it right. <laughs> well, 20 years after a younger, impulsive sister returns from a summer overseas, she dies. She's left her reliable older sister instructions of where to scatter her ashes with letters to read of explanation. There are hidden secrets and undisclosed truths to connect very difficult families in Jane Cochram's The Way From Here. Thank you very much, Jane. Thank you, Jan. Rhett Davis presents us with a landscape that is disorienting literally and figuratively in his novel Hovering. So, Rhett, welcome to 3CR. Thanks so much for having me, David. Now, your novel begins conventionally enough with Alice returning home after some 16 years, but... She experiences a sense of dislocation as the plane comes into land. She's really coming into um, reluctantly. Really, she's she's fleeing. Um, she's fleeing home. Um, sorry, she's fleeing where she was where living in in Europe back to home in Australia. Um, the disorientation, I think, is this initial sense that uh, nothing is is quite the same as as plays out quite 
obviously in the novel and, and starts to escalate from there. It's expressed in a sort of a slightly surreal kind of way in the novel. Um, for me, it's really expressing a little bit of the own my own disorientation with having left home and coming back again, that kind of strange feeling of disconnect um, that you have after being away for a long time from from your home hometown and uh, coming back to see it sort of the same, but, but a little bit different. Um, so that's really where it goes, yeah. That's happening all the time in our world. You drive down the street after two years being locked up, so to Absolutely. speak, in yeah. isolation. Yeah. Yeah. Things have changed. It's yeah. understandable. She comes to her sister's place, Lydia, but Lydia is becoming increasingly isolated and, ironically, she is the one constantly playing a computer game and losing touch with mm. the world. Yeah, I think I think the, the the dynamic between the two there is really that they are um, estranged in in um, at the beginning of the novel, um, and it's they're sort of oppositional in some ways in 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 the sense that um, Alice is the one who's just sort of gone out and and wanted to explore the world and and not sort of wanted to stay where she was, whereas Lydia is really um, a little bit too too enmeshed with with where she is. Um, and refuses to really, really leave. And there is an element of playing with the idea that maybe she's not even really comfortable where she is either because she is sort of escaping to some of these virtual worlds a little bit, maybe a little bit too much without, without sort of um, trying to uh, wag a finger at anyone. But um, she's, she's certainly um, getting lost in, in the virtual spaces a little bit, yeah. And her son, George, Alice's nephew, takes this a step further. He's creating a virtual world of his own. And this is where the surreal meets reality in some ways because in creating his own world, we sort of see it reflected in the township of Fraser where they are, mm -hmm. where that whole world becomes disoriented. And if I can just read... Infinite City 0.34 was inspired by a story he'd read by J.G. Ballard. Emily had recommended it. She was always recommending stories to him, but this one he'd actually read. The city in the story was infinitely wide and infinitely tall, encompassing the entire globe and sky. Its inhabitants knew nothing but the city. It had stayed in George's mind for weeks. His program generated new city as needed, enabling the semblance of infinity. He built through enough variation to make every street and building and window and board citizen appear slightly different. Its skyscrapers disappeared beyond sight. Its long straight avenues were ceaseless and its sky bridges never ended. It's a fantasy world, but then we see this happening in the township that Lydia and Alice and George occupy. What's going on here? <laughs> I wish I could tell you. Um, no, look, there's, there's absolutely, there's, there's elements of what George is doing, which is reflective of what's happening in the city itself. Um, so the, the city that they're actually living in, Fraser, is, is, is morphing in fairly strange ways. As, as, and as some people have sort of said, it's, it's almost like a fourth character to the in fourth main character in the book. It does change. It does do its own thing. Um, and trying to find its or the motivations of that is, is not something that I um, have clearly necessarily uh, outlined, but there are some sort of little, little trails along the way. Uh, and, and George is one of those ones that, who, who is 
who's just interested in 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 space in virtual space you know in a healthier way perhaps than than his mother um but he's busy he's expressing this in ways that um are quite quite interesting whether he has an actual causal effect um on the on the city around him is another question which i won't answer <laughs> well that was one of the first thoughts i had and it's almost like you don't need to answer it it's a an idea to ponder with and and mm. engage with but the other factor here is then this progressive notion of disorientation that starts creeping through the novel and this is mm. where we get into a figurative metaphor yep. type of interpretation Everybody feels disoriented at some point in time. Streets are what they expected. But you can transpose this almost to how the Indigenous feel about a landscape they knew that has been totally colonised. I think, look, it, it, the colonisation and the violence of that is something that I was really... Um, it, it, it's, it underlies the whole, the whole notion of, the, of that of that sort of fabulous notion of this city, the city moving. To me, I mean, as we as we all sort of would would understand, I mean, Australian cities have a a, a deeply um, we have a there, there's a deep wound there that we haven't sort of um, really addressed and and healed in any way. Whether we can is another question. But to me, it's always been a case that our cities don't always feel like they belong where they they are. Um, and that, to me, is is absolutely what something I was sort of getting at with it. Whether it's whether it's clumsy, I'm not not sure. But it, it, that was what I was I was sort of one of the one of the motivating kind of factors behind it is how unsettled Australian cities really are to me, anyway. Well, they're imposed on the landscape. Absolutely, absolutely. Yep. And yep. there are two images that remain constant in the novel: mm. the tree or the river red gum, and the actual river itself is is what you have mm. as, as constants. But moving on. Alice has returned from overseas. In fact, she's escaping something, which provides part of the intrigue of the novel, but she was part of an artist's collective in Berlin, the Kova Collective. And this brings up the whole question of art, not simply art being subversive, but art that is politically incorrect, if not Mm. an act of terrorism. Art has quite a powerful role to play in this novel. It does. I mean, it, it's the, the the trigger for her, and I, I'm probably getting into uh, a little bit of spoiler territory for people. Territory for people. So maybe if you don't want, to, <laughs> I'll just I'll, I will try and be careful. But it, it's the, the the trigger point for Alice leaving is really to do with 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 that and and a and an awful kind of. Um, installation that's 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 happened uh, not not because of what she's done but one of the other one of the other members of the group have, have gone ahead and done that and look in terms of actually expressing the uh, of using art as a within the book is really more of a vehicle i think for expressing some of the creative notions um that alice has in a way of reflecting on she she mainly as part of that group reflects on australia and her home in quite aggressive angry ways um and that was a absolutely a vehicle for kind of talking about um for, for, for me talking about some of the some of the issues that i that i have with the way we we sort of express ourselves um when we have actually done things in in this country um she she has one i, I won't talk about too much more there because i don't want to kind of spoil it too much but um yeah we've well, actually provided an appendix of the artworks 
in yes. the back page yes. in terms exactly. and they all all the titles suggest something about what is taking place but we won't yeah. take that too much further to give anything away but it leads then into your actual novel as mm. being part of uh, a subversive and disorienting mm. exercise because you toy and play with approaches and styles. So yeah. there's a, a split screen <laughs> mm. at several mm. stages where we're seeing two discourses taking place simultaneously. You're yeah. challenging the reader? At some level, I think I, I don't. I didn't mean to sort of be um, too, <laughs> too, too challenging in that way. The, the the sort of forms that I've put in there, I would like to think, are really reflections of of, of forms in in other novels. I don't think I'm reinventing the wheel in any way. Um, what, some of the work that I looked at and and has inspired it. Certainly, the tables and the split screen stuff is is pretty much lifted from um, B. S. Johnson's work in the in the 60s. Um, he had a particular um, novel, Albert Angelo, which did a magnificent table structure where there was one one column was was what was going on, and the second column was was the the interior view of of the character that was was in that scene. And you can do that through standard prose, of course, but there was there was something in that split that really was really compelling to me. And so a lot of these sort of forms I, I love in in from from his work. From people like Jennifer Egan, um, who did a visit from the Goon Squad a few years ago, and has got um, the Candy House coming up pretty pretty soon, playing with form in there. I, I just find for me, playing with form in novels is fun um, to start with. Just it, it's, and it's another way into into characters in ways you don't necessarily. Um, for me as a writer, it's just it just it provides a different window into these characters. I also thought it reflected the themes and ideas that you were True. raising in terms of the artwork being rebellious, the Kodak mm. Collective, the book is rebellious in some ways as it becomes mm. disorienting in terms of how we read the landscape. So it all made for a, a complete picture in, in that. Oh, that's, that's, that's good. I, I was hoping that it would sort of be a little bit like that, that we could sort of, um, it was, a, it was a, a little bit reflective of some of those kind of um, more the, the forms in, in say that, that that they're pushing a little bit from an artistic point of view but but it also begs the question then of how we should tell these stories especially of mm. things like indigenous dispossession let alone our own sense of displacement yeah look i think i'm i'm always very careful with with my writing in that sense i'm a i'm a I'm a white guy. I've got I've got certain sort of um, you know um, privilege that I have to sort of be be mindful of as I'm writing, and and certainly I'm not trying to write an indigenous perspective or take an indigenous story or anyone's story um, in that in that manner. This is more of a reflection on on colonizer kind of culture, I suspect, more than anything else. But yeah, there, there's an element of being being mindful that this is this has got. First Nations issues in there. I'm dealing with, and I, at some level, I also agree that there's not really much writing in Australia that should be separate from First Nations issues because that's what this country is and has been built on. So, and the violence of it. So, we we need to sort of recognise that at some level um, in all of our in all of our work um, as the foundation for it. Well, thank you very much, Rep, for talking with me today. Those issues of displacement, I think we can all identify with. The book is entitled Hovering. The author, as I said, Rhett Davis, 
and it's a Hachette publication. So, Rhett, once again, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me, David. Appreciate it. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.